Welcome to a new episode of FI Insight, the Global Financial Institutions Industry Podcast. My name is Chris Muir, a U.S. attorney based in our Zurich, Switzerland office. For this episode, we are going to cover Africa with an additional focus on South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, and Ethiopia, and discuss key financial institutions trends that emerge across the post-pandemic continent. In a nutshell, in the post-pandemic environment in Africa, financial institutions will have to navigate not only an economy in recession, but one where there will be many disruptors to existing business models and a rapid acceleration of existing trends, such as digitalization, cybercrime and environmental issues, social and governance factors, uh, which we commonly refer to as ESG. Joining us today is Vildu Duplessis, head of Baker McKenzie's Banking and Finance Practice Group in our Johannesburg office, and who also acts as the office's Africa head. So thank you for joining us, Vildu. Perhaps we can begin with you sharing more about your background for our listeners. Thanks, Chris. Yes, um, as you mentioned, uh, I'm a partner in our Johannesburg office. I'm a banking and finance partner uh, by training, but I also do a lot of work uh, as the firm's head of Africa on, you know, on the African continent, uh, looking specifically at the financial institutions industry. So uh, I've been uh, going about this for, for quite a while. Uh, we opened the office here in Johannesburg about eight years ago, nine years ago. Uh, before that, I you know, was doing very similar things. Uh, but you know, my client base would typically be large uh, domestic or international financial institutions, private equity groups, corporates, and so on. I live in Johannesburg. I've grown up in Johannesburg. And, you know, other than a short stint in Washington, D.C., at some stage, I've been practicing law in, uh, in South Africa and on the African continent, you know, for, uh, for quite a while. Great. And thank you so much for joining us. So today, let's begin by setting the scene. So how would you describe the current situation in Africa at this stage of the pandemic? And could you also share some regional highlights? Yes, sure. I mean, if we start thinking about or just talking about how uh, our developed financial institutions across our main markets uh, in Africa have, 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 have been affected and responded to the, the pandemic, you know, I think the first point would be that we, we have to start with infrastructure financing. So infrastructure financing in Africa has been and remains key to the continent's uh, development. And that's facilitated by a number of role players. So the, the first would be your DFIs, your development finance institutions, whether they be multilateral uh, DFIs or bilateral DFIs, and then your ECAs, export credit agencies, large, chunky uh, 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 um, providers of capital, and they work alongside your commercial banks, but they play different roles. So your multilaterals or your DFIs and ECAs would typically plant the seeds for local capital markets and, and local financing, and then your commercial banks bring additional capacity. So if we just look at what is the, you know, what is the current African uh, financial institution scene looks like, according to KPMG, of the top 30 global banks, if we look at asset size, 19 of them have a regional presence in Africa, with your French banks leading the race, uh, followed by Chinese, Japanese, U.S. players, uh, and Southern Africa is typically the preferred foothold. If we contrast that to the to the um, to the uh, insurance industry, only ten of the top forty global insurance have a presence in Africa. 
again, mainly in the south and in the west, where you have key markets like South Africa, Nigeria, Ghana, Senegal, and so on. We've also seen over the last few years that several major banks, and a number of them U.S. banks, have withdrawn their global operations uh, in Africa to retreat to home markets, and that is usually following quite stringent regulatory requirements, uh, capital buffers, and so on. So we've seen the rise of, of local, or let's call them African banks and insurers, and they've really focused and continue to focus on their regional expansion. And what they do there is they really try to grow and diversify uh, their earnings in the face of increased domestic competition as the domestic markets in Africa become you know, more hotly contested. All of the larger uh, regional or domestic banks start looking a bit further, further afield. So I think we're at a stage where we start, we can start talking about pan-African uh, financial institutions that are starting to come to the fore. So if we then just one last bit on that is is post the financial crisis here in the sort of uh, mid to late two thousands, banks from the larger African economies, Morocco, Nigeria, South Africa, Egypt, have been uh, systematically buying up the businesses of international banks as and when they retreat. So as your international banks started exiting certain regions, your uh, your domestic or your regional banks have started sort of moving in there. And, and, and that has enabled these larger African banks to really strengthen their footprint across the region. You know, if I, you can sort of use any number of examples, but as I said, it would typically be South African, Nigeria, Moroccan, and uh, Egyptian. Great. Yeah, I think that was incredibly helpful. And I certainly appreciate the idea that when we're talking about an entire continent, it's really hard to speak in generalities and then also uh, specifics for countries that are also themselves very large, too. Uh, so hopefully we can explore more of those topics. And let's start first with looking at subsectors uh, with a focus on banks. Uh, we've observed that African banks are performing relatively well during this pandemic. Uh, can you elaborate on why you think this may be and what steps African banks may have made in order to protect themselves during the pandemic? Yeah. So, Chris, the, the, the first sort of thing that springs to mind or that comes to mind is, is if you talk about African banks that have been performing relatively well, is, of course, that in response to the pandemic, uh, we've seen a number of African central banks deploying a variety of monetary policy tools. Some of that is lowering policy rates, reducing capital requirements for uh, the banks that they regulate, providing liquidity support measures, allowing loan deferrals, refinancing frameworks, and so on. So the central banks have in Africa have really sort of played their part in trying to make sure that they protect the African banking system. The, the, the pandemic has of, course, has, of course, caused both uh, demand and supply side shocks um, in, in many African countries. As I've said, your central banks have taken a leading role in crafting a response to these shocks. And all of those efforts are aimed at ensuring that there's financial sector stability within a market or in a region um, and preventing financial fallout for both corporates, households, and then the, the financial institutions that these central banks would be regulating. Um, I've mentioned some of the tools that, that the banks have used or that the central banks have used. Um, one bit that I haven't mentioned before, that, but 
I'm sure we'll get to it a bit later in our discussion, is the issue about mobile money, e-payment support measures. We see a lot of that in Africa, um, where your, your, your population would have access to non-banking payment methods. And, you know, your central banks have really sort of tried to facilitate economic activity during the lockdown uh, by making sure that, that these systems continue uh, to work. So if we just turn to what the banks themselves have been doing, uh, I think by and large we've seen that the African banks have been the primary conduit of aid during the crisis. So they, they, they've played and I believe they will continue to play a central role in the recovery. Uh, we've seen a number of banks uh, enabling credit programs. Um, it, 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 it allows for a, a almost a reimagining of their business model. Uh, but, you know, what we've seen a number of the banks do is give loan holidays, that sort of things to their customers. Um, of course, recognizing that if the customers don't survive the, uh, the, the economic consequences of the lockdown and the pandemic, there will be a massive impact on the bank itself. So um, banks have been also fundamental to the large scale relief that has to be distributed in Africa, specifically to your SME, small and medium-sized enterprises and individuals. Uh, what we've seen is that a number of, let's call them wholesale uh, relief measures have been announced by some of the development banks, uh, and that is then rolled out through the commercial banks in various uh, African uh, countries. The, 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 the next bit that we've sort of seen happening there is We've seen consumers and, interestingly for me, regulators alike, they expected their banks to continue lending and at scale. So in a recent McKinsey survey of African consumers, uh, if you think about that, you know, Moroccan and Kenyan customers have ranked facilitated access to credit as their top expectation from banks. And I, I focused on Morocco and Kenya here because that's what I happened to to pick up it, but, you know, absolutely similar for your other African jurisdictions. So um, I think there's been a number of measures that central banks have done and that banks themselves have done to try and uh, deal with the pandemic. Great. That's really interesting. And I certainly would like to hear more about your thoughts on payment trends in Africa, because I think a lot of what will end up being the future of that industry is starting with trends that originate in Africa. But first, let's touch on financial services regulatory frameworks. Uh, my understanding is that the commentary is that the frameworks have improved substantially over the last few years. So could you please speak about the regulatory actions that have taken place recently and how they've been critical through this uh, pandemic and any changes you would expect moving forward? Yeah, so, so the, uh, because the, that's a, it's a good point you make or a nice question that you ask. Uh, we have seen a lot of regulatory changes in Africa in the financial industry sector, of course, um, over the last you know couple of years. Not all of them focused on the COVID pandemic. Um, so just to cast our minds back to sort of pre-pandemic, we've seen a, a host of new regulations uh, as African financial institutions are becoming more part of the mainstream activity, the main uh, global act activity, which means that every single financial institution in Africa is becoming more and more heavily regulated. And if you look at what the, the pandemic has done, it is definitely those regulatory 
uh, changes that have also sparked some of the recovery bits there. Uh, the the and, and and you know we've seen that there's been um, uh, a number of monetary policy bits that have been implemented by by central banks or by the regulators. Uh, policy rate reductions. I mentioned the reduction in bank capital requirements, uh, additional liquidity support measures, but these were all very specifically uh, pandemic focused. What I um, find quite interesting, though, is to say. How have the uh, how has regulation affected the mobile payment and fintech support system in Africa? So we've seen that almost well, almost 16 African central banks have announced a formal policy to encourage cashless payment transactions or introduced other forms of fintech support policies. What we've seen is that the COVID-19 pandemic has acted almost as a catalyst for regulators to really look at uh, the uh, e-money, mobile payment fintech support measures. And uh, as I said, there's a number of uh, regulators that have looked at it, and it's in, in our large economies. Eh? Egypt, Ghana, Kenya, Tanzania, Nigeria, South Africa, and so on. So, so that, for me, is interesting to watch what is going to happen there. Um, I would think that the use of mobile money it has grown a lot in Africa, and it will continue to grow a lot. So I think there's a lot of um, sort of market commentators and experts that, that that predict and that say that mobile money was, you know, will play a, a big role in the development of African financial uh, markets. Uh, and it, of course, has the potential to accelerate financial inclusion in African nations. So where a number of people are sitting outside the formal banking uh, sector, uh, they don't have bank accounts, mobile money or e-money definitely gives them access to that. The last bit that I want to sort of just talk a bit about on the regulatory framework and and improve sustainability and so on is that I'm personally very positive, very upbeat about what the um, African Continental Free Trade Agreement, EFTCA for short. You know, EFTCA is the African response to the fragmentation of trade unions that we've seen globally. So completely contrary to the trade tensions that we've seen in the last couple of years between the US and China, the whole Brexit issue that we see in Europe, African nations have come together and they, this, you know, this agreement came into effect uh, literally um, uh, middle of last year to say that we are moving towards an continental free trade in goods and services in Africa. The success, of course, of such a free trade um, arrangement will rely very heavily on your financial services industry's ability to service the brain of the liberalization process. So if you look at what the World Trade Organization and the IMF and so on is saying about it, is to say that it's absolutely crucial to have facilitating transactions um, and your financial services industry, of course, plays that facilitation role. So as there's going to be um, an increase in continental trade or intercontinental trade, Africa to Africa, uh, you know, you will see a, 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 a burgeoning of the, uh, of, the, of the continent's financial services in industries. Now, all of that will have to be regulated. The opening of new markets and the easing of cross-border transactions that's envisaged under EFTCA 
uh, will, you know, it's expected to increase capital funds and promote both foreign direct investment and intercontinental in, in, in investment in Africa. And your financial institutions will need to lead the way uh, to make sure that that continues to happen. Um, there's a number of key industries, of course, that is that's 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 important uh, in this. Uh, uh, Af- Africa has been for the last 30 years, and I believe it will continue to be for the foreseeable future, very um, uh, industry heavy. So uh, uh, mining, minerals, that sort of thing, uh, EMI, uh, quite important, but increasingly things like healthcare, telecoms, uh, consumer goods. Uh, and you can see how your how an, an African free trade agreement uh, underpinned by a properly functioning financial services industry in Africa will really sort of, uh, it could really unlock the, uh, the, uh, the potential. Great. And so I want to turn to maybe more global trends and see how that they are manifesting themselves in Africa. And you've touched upon a lot of these already, but I just want to explore them a little bit more. Uh, So major global trends we're seeing with financial institutions include shadow banking, increasing regulatory scrutiny, rising global debt, impact of new technologies, and sustainable financial institutions. So of these five, can you give us some top line observations as to how these trends are currently shaping and influencing Africa financial institutions? Shadow banking. I think, as I mentioned earlier, many populations across Africa remain unbanked. So we've seen a rise of, let's call it financial intermediaries, or what we would call shadow banking, but we've seen a huge rise of this in the use of e-money. Um, so what we've seen there, and, and, and the, the example that I can use is, is um, uh, Mpesa, the, the, the Kenyan uh, e-money uh, process or structure. So you can see how non-traditional players are actually entering the space in the form of whether you call it shadow banking or just you know, a new form of, of banking or, or payments. But... Uh, McKinsey believes that African banks will face competition from three main non-banking competitors. The one one is telcos. Telcos expanding their activities into payments, mobile finance, and so on. Second one is major global technology players. They've already developed a strong activity in financial services outside of Africa, and they're now starting to turn their focus on Africa. And, you know, that will come also as a big disruptor to your traditional uh, banks and, and other financial in, industry players. And then digital attackers is what McKinsey call it, the, 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 the fintechs. So these are typically uh, players that have made inroads into the consumer services and corporate services and so on. So what we can see is for Africa, where you have this massive unbanked po- uh, portion of your population, these shadow bankers or alternative methods to access the same service that you would typically get from a bank or, a, or, a, or an insurance company is really sort of coming to the fore. Now, that goes hand in hand with new technology. Uh, new technology is important in Africa because we've seen, and I think that's really where the whole sort of idea of the leapfrogging of technologies came from, is if we look at, again, a simple example of, 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 of uh, uh, telecommunications. 
Africa still has a very low penetration rate of landlines, uh, you know, very previous century uh, measurement, but the number of mobile and smartphone penetration way higher. So you can see how you need to marry your new technology with these disruptors to sort of really, you know, bring something new to the fore. As when you see new technologies and new new role players starting to uh, enter in your market, you know, then, of course, there will always be a regulatory response to it, and we can see it uh, coming. The, the other bit that I wanted to sort of touch on is the issue of sustainable uh, sustainable financial institutions and, and the whole issue of sustainability or ESG. So we've seen, um, you know, we've seen the, uh, a trend that, that green bonds or sustainable finance is gaining popularity across Africa. And we've, we've, we've really sort of seen a lot of that in Africa over the last, what's it, sort of literally eight years. 2012 is more or less the first, uh, the first time that NetBank, which is a South African bank, uh, issued the continent's very first green bond. Uh, ever since that, there's been a number of green bonds that have been issued. Every single um, inquiry that we would be getting would have a sustainability element linked to it. And what we've also seen, of course, is that it's not only the banks themselves or the, the, the private players in the industry that's looking at sustainability. We've seen countries, and I'm thinking of people like Rwanda and Ghana, who've gone uh, to the market to say, as a, as a sovereign issuer, I am really focused on uh, sustainability and so on, and I want to make sure that everything I do has got a positive impact on sustainability. So I do think you know, that's an, a very interesting bit for me to watch coming out of Africa. Great. Yeah, I think that was really helpful. And I think a, a concept that you've been touching upon is that the pandemic accelerated adoption of a lot of uh, developments or trends that were already occurring, uh, but maybe at a faster rate. And the, the pandemic essentially made the future happen sooner. Uh, so I, I guess we want to focus a little bit more on digitalization and the impact of new technologies. Uh, yeah, I, I guess let's spend a, a little bit more time on cryptocurrencies because it is something where countries are certainly kind of grappling with how they want to approach regulation. And the result of that, though, is a broad spectrum of action or inaction uh, across you know, the world and even, I think, across the continent of Africa. I think in some places it seems to be accepted, where, whereas I believe this past week the Central Bank of Nigeria advised financial institutions that they're prohibited from interacting with that industry. And certainly correct me if I'm wrong. So I think it'd be interesting to maybe spend a little more time on how you see uh, if there it's possible that the various regulatory regimes can be reconciled or you think it will be somewhat disjointed for the foreseeable future. Yeah, uh, look, I think that uh, for the foreseeable future, we are going to have a, 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 a different approach by different regulators to this whole issue of, um, of, of cryptocurrency and blockchain and, and so on. Not only in Africa, I might add, but, but globally, you know, regulators are starting to figure out what do they want to do and how do they want to regulate it. Um, I think the, uh, <laughs> the early 
the early hopes of a nirvana that this will remain an unregulated space that all of the developers used to talk about five, six, seven years ago. I think that's, you know, that's definitely not going to be uh, the case. So different countries will regulate it differently. If we look at Africa, I think some governments have taken a very positive stance on it, uh, trying to understand how best to regulate the use of blockchain and cryptocurrency in Africa. Others have adopted a wait-and-see approach, and some governments have been quite apprehensive and reserved. And you, you, used the, you used exactly the correct example. We did see the Nigerian Central Bank literally earlier in February saying, you know, absolutely clamp down, no more, nothing. So some, some regulators do remain quite unreceptive to the use of this te technology. Um, if we look at specific countries, countries like Zimbabwe and Namibia have begun with a hard stance. Um, and they've moved away from it. I think in the, on the continent, uh, 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 Mauritius has probably been a regional front runner, and they've, they've adopted a, an approach that's really sort of in line with what they've done on a number of other sort of fronts, incentivized um, approach looking at cryptocurrencies and what they can do. So a task force has been established by, by the Kenyan government to explore the use of digital currencies and artificial intelligence. Uh, as one typically would see in a number of, of regulated uh, countries, then the central bank of Kenya said, but, you know, let's just be very careful here. Your central banks would tend to be a bit more uh, um, conservative sometimes than, than the, the governments and saying, let's just make very sure that the use of digital currencies uh, do not create systemic, uh, systemic issues uh, for us. But it is expected that regulators will continue to engage uh, with one another and with their governments to make sure that a legislative framework is found that works. So Kenya and the whole East African uh, uh, side of things, to me, sounds they're on the right track. You know, they they they're talking about it. They've you know they there's discussions going on. There's there's a whole host of um, uh, people already involved in it. Nigeria, of course, just before <laughs> this February uh, announcement. Uh, there has not really been any regulation. So the central bank in Nigeria have, have, have spoken about releasing a white paper and all of that. But, uh, you know, if, if we take into account that Nigeria is the world's third largest Bitcoin holdings as a percentage of GDP, um, it is something that they will have to deal with. So for me, this could probably just be a stopgap measure to say no more trading. Let's first Let's first sort out what we want to do regulatory-wise. Um, the other large market in Africa, South Africa, we don't have any specific regulations as of yet. Um, there has been a positive response from regulators. They, they're working with the fintech and the banking industry to find out, you know, how does it work and so on. Um, we, we seem to regulate or to, we, see, we seem to recognize that we may, that there may probably be very little difference between a domestic and an international payment. Uh, again, you can see where this comes from. South Africa has always had a, a huge system of exchange or capital controls where you differentiate between domestic payments and international payments. So I think the point I'm trying to make is that every country in Africa is reacting to it differently. And so let's switch gears a little bit and turn to sustainability. Uh, we've observed a trend that green bonds are gaining popularity across Africa. And countries in Africa have made steps or developed frameworks in order to tap into this growing trend. 
Can you provide some specifics on what you've seen at the country level or maybe if it's um, more practical at the regional level? And also maybe turn to a broader discussion of ESG and how African financial institutions have reacted to this trend of developing ESG frameworks uh, within their respective enterprises. Yes, so, so maybe just tackling the second part of that question first, and then I'll come back to the, to the, to the first part. Um, having been involved in financing African transactions for the last 30 years, I've seen firsthand how that... The, 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 how, how, how ESG has grown in importance. So, and it started off in an in a, in a interesting place, you know, in the mining industry, where um, some of uh, our older, uh, well, let me rather put it like this, some of the people who listen who've also been doing this for a while <laughs> would probably still remember the, uh, the whole set about equator principles. It was World Bank um, devised, rolled out, by the I, uh, rolled out by the IMF, the World Bank, the IFC, and so on. If you look, you know, if you roll forward a, you know, a few decades forward to where we are now, it's very much not only the UN principles or the equator principles that is governing this, this, uh, uh, this bit. Every single financing that is done, whether you're financing a mine or a road or a takeover, you know, people are very concerned, very focused on, I shouldn't say concerned, very focused on uh, sustainability, ESG, uh, and how do I make sure that what I do, tick the boxes for that. And tick the boxes not in a not in a pejorative way, not in saying it's a box tick, it's a box ticking exercise. Saying I want to be able to show that what I've done here fully shows the world how sustainable I can be. Um, and what's interesting there for me, which is of course almost at a at a, at a different end of the, of the of the regulatory spectrum, is not the regulations that require you to do that. It is how visible this has become. If you look at uh, uh, an exchange like the, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, the JZ, largest exchange in Africa, um, you know, one of the oldest exchanges in, in the world, every company that's listed on the JSC is required to publish a report on its sustainability impact. Now, the moment that you start giving that sort of visibility from a, yes, it's a regulatory perspective. It's, it's, it's not a regulation that says you have to comply with this, that, and this underlying sustainability charter. It just says, tell the world what are you doing about sustainability. That's when people start focusing on it. Turning back to the first part of the question, you, you mentioned green bonds. So I think I said earlier, NetBank issued the first uh, green bond in 2012. After that, we've probably seen about 20 green bond issuance, private green bond issuances, and we've started seeing them being issued not only by corporates, but as I said, by sovereigns, by sub-sovereigns, by municipal governments. We've also seen that your African banks and other financial institutions have started to take action on climate change. I know climate change is a hotly debated topic at the moment. Climate change is definitely something that you see your your African uh, financial institutions getting in on. Um, they like to finance uh, things like agriculture, manufacturing, and so on. And all of that then says, but I have to make sure that the borrower that I finance here, the deal that I finance here, 
has to have impeccable sustainability or climate change uh, credentials. Great. Uh, so I think that was really helpful for our listeners and it demonstrates certainly your, your great insight into what's going on in the continent overall. And so perhaps your your vision of the crystal ball may be clearer than others. So I think we'll have to put you on the spot at the end and ask what your predictions are for the future for financial institutions in Africa. Uh, do you have any predictions on what you see in the post-pandemic landscape, uh, particularly for African financial institutions? The first issue, of course, is that um, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, it is generally forecast and included by World Bank and so on that there will be a decline in growth in the region. Um, and it's the first time in 30 years that Africa will have a decline in growth. So what that says is that African economies should generally expect to lose between about $37 billion and $79 billion in output losses. These are big figures for African economies. It will have a huge financial impact. Um, it is going to take a while for your African economies to bounce back, to achieve financial stability and recovery um, as a result of that. Now, to that, earlier in the, in the discussion, you mentioned you know, the rising level of debt. I think you've got to overlay that on top of that. So there is there is going to be a contraction in African economy, uh, uh, African economic output, a cut in growth rates, and if you look at that, the increase in in debt levels on the continent, I do think your African economies are going to take a bit longer than what people would generally expect for them to bounce back from the economy. Um, so the other bit that I think is, 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 is important for your African financial institutions is there are notable gaps in the market. We spoke about new technologies, uh, cryptocurrency, all of that, new products, shadow banking. There's gaps in the market. There are ones that point to the need for more personalized and affordable offerings. Small businesses, individuals, households, the traditional unbanked or uninsured in Africa. Now, that creates a lot of opportunity for new role players. All of that, of course, will put a lot of pressure on your traditional banks and insurance, your bricks and mortar guys, to say, how do I make sure that I keep my market share? Um, if, if you look at the number of new banks that we've seen in South Africa, as, just as an example, all of them, no fee-based, absolutely uh, only a digital offering. So very difficult for your traditional large banks to compete with. Huge difference in cost base. And of course, if you were to speak to any uh, of your traditional, whether it's a global, a regional or a domestic bank about saying, if you had the opportunity using 2020s or 2021s technology, to redesign your backbone infrastructure. I'm not talking about branches. I'm talking about your, <laughs> your, your computer system. Will you, will, will you end up with what you have? And the answer absolutely every time is no, it'll look completely different. But we've got what we have and we need to, you know, we can't switch it off. So gaps in the market, it'll allow for new entrants. 
increased competition. As we know, increased competition is always good for the consumer. So I think, you know, those are the two main themes. The technology thing, the access to technology plays into that. Um, and, you know, you can see how it, things are going to change quite a lot. Access to services, affordable access to services, uh, and then taking this, uh, you know, this uh, earlier point of saying it's going to take a bit longer for African economies to bounce back. I think those are the three things to watch. Great. So I think you did pretty well, uh, seeing that we put you on the spot there. And so we, we thank you so much for your expertise. I think that was really incredible and provides um, a huge uh, understanding uh, for everyone that's looking to understand the markets here in Africa and also understand what we could see also in the rest of the world as these trends expand. So thank you so much, Vildu, for joining us for today's episode. And thank you so much to our listeners. If you have found this podcast helpful, you may also be interested to know that Baker McKenzie has produced a series of podcasts in relation to the themes of resilience, recovery, and renewal in light of the COVID-19 crisis. We will also be releasing trend-focused podcasts in line with the ongoing series, Finding Balance, uh, which deals with the post-COVID landscape for financial institutions. My name is Chris Muir, and so thank you so much for listening. We hope you can join us for the next episode of FI Insight.